Today we're talking about how God proves his love. And yet, as soon as I say love, I suspect that different people are thinking, thinking about different things. Different people hear different things by that word. And so to help us out, help us uh, at least get going in the right direction, I'm going to uh, go to some children to help straighten us out in uh, getting, a, getting a handle on this thing called love. Uh, our children are down in Sunday school, so I won't put anyone on the spot, but I, I'm going to uh, uh, go to a number of quotes that uh, Mark Buchanan gives us of uh, some children's definitions of love. Billy, age four, says, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that, that your name is safe in, your, in their mouth. I like that. Cindy, age eight, says, During my piano recital, I was on a stage and I was scared and I looked at all the people watching me and I saw my daddy waving and smiling. He was the only one doing that and I wasn't scared anymore. That's love. Bobby, age seven, says, Love is what's in the room at Christmas if you stop opening presents and just listen. Rebecca, age eight, says, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even though he's got arthritis too now. <laughs> That's love. Now, these children help us a little bit in understanding love, but I think we also need to say these children are blessed, right? They're blessed because they have observed love or been on the receiving end of love. And, and it affects them. Uh, growing up without ever experiencing or seeing or observing this, something is missing. You will face challenges in life for lack of love. The true, while that is true of our emotional growth as human beings, it's also true of our spiritual growth as, as human beings. Someone who grows up never experiencing the love of God will limp along spiritually. That person will struggle to, to really find their stride because there is something that the soul was created to enjoy that is not there. The problem is that we don't often understand God's love. Sometimes we can misread God's love. If we're expecting God to love us in a particular way and he doesn't, we can conclude that God doesn't care, that God doesn't love us. When, in fact, the problem is that we haven't read God's love language. There can be confusion and misunderstanding. There can be a misreading of God's love. And today's passage is intended to set that straight. It's intended for us to come to a clear and unmistakable conviction re regarding the love of God and to receive it by faith. It's also intended to help us to sort out what, how God doesn't express his love primarily, how, how he, he has proven his love in our lives. And so to do that today, we're going to, uh, we're going to turn to a, a book of the Bible which you probably don't normally turn to. 
Uh, we're looking at the book of Malachi. Chances are, if you've ever heard the book preached, there's probably one of two sermons that you've heard, two passages that the pastor has gone to. We're not going to do that. We're going to walk through it from beginning to end because it is uh, a wonderful book and there is much to be uh, enjoyed in it. Uh, the book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, and you can, you can start turning there because it might take you some time to find it. Uh, it's the last book of the Old Testament, God's final word before there would be 400 years of silence before Jesus would come and the new covenant would be introduced. Uh, in, although we're going to enter into that 400 years, it's been almost 100 years now since the people have come back from ex- exile. Israel has returned to the land. The Israelites have re-entered the promised land. And at this point, the temple's been rebuilt, kind of. There's a little wall around the outskirts of Jerusalem. Uh, Many people have returned, many people have not. Uh, But they are beginning to rebuild their lives, and all is not well. There are still some significant problems that they face. But we hear God's word to them, In Malachi chapter 1, and I'll read from verses 1 to 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? It's not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of God. Now, before we get into the actual expressions of God's love, the different ways that God proves his love, we need to understand why God starts here in the first place anyway. Because, as I said, this is a people and a time in in the lives of the people of God where there are deep, serious problems. And there are many places that God could have started. Uh, But he starts where he does because we can't get better until we experience and see the love of God. That if we try to move on with different or other parts of the Christian life without first coming to terms with and receiving the love of God, then we will find ourselves limping along spiritually, frustrated in our attempts to move forward because something essential and foundational is not right. We can't get better until we see the the love of God. Now, to put the passage in context, I want to ask you a question. What would you do if your child was uh, disrespectful, half-hearted, unfaithful, immoral, and selfish all at the same time? Uh, How would you respond to that child? What would you do to that child? 
And uh, if, if some of you brought your children today, maybe on the, on the drive home, you can ask your children. I'm sure they'd be more than happy to give you their, their best guess of what you might do uh, if, that was, uh, if that was their condition before, uh, before you. Uh, but most people, I think, would start with anger and scolding. They would bring discipline and correction. And, and uh, hey, discipline and correction are good and biblical. They're important. They're necessary, but as we'll see, they are not primary. If you start there, and if that is your only tool, the only means by which you will relate to a child in particularly uh, such desperate circumstances as I've described, then you will find yourself frustrated. God didn't start where we might have started. He starts with the love of God because he knows that if the people don't feel and experience the love of God, that it will be difficult for them to move forward from there. And so in verse 2, it just says, I have loved you, says the Lord. He expresses his love. He communicates his love. He is at pains to convince them of his love and to persuade them of that love. And as soon as he's expressed it, we learn, hey, this is, this is a sore point. This is an open wound for them. Because they say, how have you loved us? It's not a philosophical question. They're, they're not looking for some details of theology that they just hadn't picked up yet. If, you're, if you tell your wife, I've loved you, and she says, how have you loved me? You know that that's, uh, that's the time for you to sit down. You're going to be having a long conversation. This is, this is going to be uh, a, a difficult one to walk through. So their words are not philosophical. They are accusation. They are confronting God. The reason for that is that Israel was doing what you do. They're doing what I do. We look for proof of God's love in our circumstance and, and the things that we're dealing with right now. And they looked at their circumstances and they said, things are pretty rough right now. I'm not sure God does love us. I don't see evidence for God's love in the circumstances that I'm in today. For instance, I mentioned that they had returned from the land. They had, they're back in the promised land, or at least some of them were. Problem was, they were still ruled by Persia. They had returned to the land and they'd built a temple. But it was kind of a cheap, puny temple compared to the glorious one that had been built under Solomon. They had land. They were back in the promised land again. But they just had a very small portion of that land. There, the, the actual province that they had authority over was some 32 by 48 kilometers. And I said that people had moved back to the land. Only about 150,000 of them had. And so this is a fraction of the nation occupying a fraction of the land, having a temple that was a fraction of what the great temple had been under Solomon. And they are feeling like that. They look at their circumstances and they feel like losers. And they look to the God who is, who, who, whose name they bear and they say, I'm not sure if he really does love us. I'm not sure if he really does care. 
And if that's how you're feeling this morning, the, the, this passage is written for you. If you're looking to your circumstances and saying, I don't, I don't know if God, God really is all that interested. This passage was written to convince you and to persuade you with the love of God. And, and, and it's important, and God starts here because he knows that your healing and growth as a person will not move forward unless you settle this one and settle it decisively. For instance, uh, 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. It always works that way. It never works the other way around. The Bible never says, we loved God so much that he decided to love us. doesn't say that. In fact, it, it says the opposite because unless we have received the love of God, we are incapable of expressing that love, incapable of showing love. Our growth, our growth in love, in righteousness, comes from being rightly connected with the God who is love, the God who is righteous, and receiving all that he is. In fact, 1 John 4, 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. It's saying that a lack of love in a person's life is a sign that they don't really know God. They're not really connected to God, because God is a source of love, and so if we are not connected to him and receiving the love that he gives, we will not love ourselves. But you have to not only know that God is love, you have to know that he loves you. You need to know that not only that God loves people in general, but that he loves you in particular, in the specific, in the individual. 1 John 4.16 puts it this way, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. There's a certainty there, a conviction. Not only that God is love, but that God loves me. He loves us. It is particular, it is specific. And so, if this is so foundational and it's so important for us to move forward, we need to pause and to ask ourselves, do you know the love of God? Have you experienced the love that God has for not humanity, because that's, that's important too, but for you in particular? Do you know that God cares for you and loves you and is committed to you? If you can't, you won't go forward. And I would even say, don't try to go forward. Until you settle this one, the other things will not flow. You won't get better until you see the love of God. The problem is, if you continue to look for it in your circumstances, try to figure out and interpret God and his love through the stuff that you're going through, your sense of God's love will always be uncertain. Because the fact is, we don't understand God's, what God's doing in our circumstances. We've said again and again that God's ways are above our ways, right? His thoughts are above our thoughts. And so, although God is at, his love is at work in our circumstances, so often we don't understand what God's doing in our circumstances. And so he points us in a different direction. We have to see that 
God has proven his love, but he's proven his love not through what God's doing in your circumstances today, but in something more foundational that he's done in our past. The second thing this passage teaches is that we see the love of God in a blessing that we don't deserve. It's in the grace of a God who sets his love on sinful people that don't deserve that love that we can see how deeply committed to us he is. We see the love of God in a blessing we don't deserve. Now God's response to the, we've, we've heard the people's complaint. We know that there's a big disconnect and a problem between God and his people. But his response to their complaint takes us by surprise. People have just questioned God's love. We expect God to persuade them. But look at what he says. He says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. And we're reading that thinking, what on earth does that have to do with anything? How, how is that any proof of your love, God? I'm not getting it. What, why are you talking about Jacob? Jacob at this point was uh, the, the, one of the patriarchs, lived 1,500 years before Malachi. So if you're thinking, boy, Jacob, that seems like an awful long way ago from my life. It was almost as far away from uh, the Israelites and their lives. Jacob and Esau were the twin sons of Isaac. Uh, they, they were, they were uh, born to him, and uh, Jacob was... Jacob was a person that didn't have a lot of things going for him naturally in terms of his pedigree. He was the second-born son in a culture that gave all the rights and privileges to the first-born son. He kind of, he kind of missed out on, on, the, uh, on the, the birth order thing. He was, he was a, a man who was named Jacob. Jacob means grasps at the heel. It's a euphemism for Cheater, deceiver. And cheating and deceiving became kind of the defining characteristic of his life. He was also a homebody. Jacob was someone who enjoyed cooking more than he enjoyed hunting. And whatever you may feel about that, in his day and in his culture, being a strong, courageous hunter was kind of a big deal. And his brother had all of that. His brother had all of the, the, the macho and all of the, uh, all of the power and the hunting skills, and he kind of just hung around the tents and cooked soup. He didn't have a lot that was going to be going into his, uh, his resume as he was going to, if he was going to be uh, applying for, for anything. And yet the verse says, I have loved Jacob. God set his love on someone who was not really your first candidate for uh, lovableness. He was not the, the one that you would have uh, set aside. In fact, his father passed him over and said, boy, this, this macho firstborn hunting son, I really like him a lot more. God says, I've loved Jacob. God points back to this person that lived 1,500 years before any of, this, of any of their circumstances that they're dealing with, he points all the way back there for a very particular reason. He, he wants to remind them that he has loved them by giving them a blessing that they don't deserve. 
Their circumstances might not all, all that they'd hoped for. They might not enjoy all of the, the dream, the way that they thought the dream was going to play out. But God wanted them to see that he loved them. And it was a love that was undeserved and unexpected. His, his love language is grace. And God proves his love for us in the same way today. He proves his love in showing love to people who aren't deserving of that love. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is his love language. That is the way he expresses and communicates his love for us. And, and, and we forget sometimes how unusual this love is. How, how unlike the love of our world is. Because even though people will say today that the God of the Bible is, is, is really barbaric and, and we, we're so much more enlightened. We, we've come so far from those days. And yet we still don't love sinners. We, we still don't, we're still not accepting of sinners. We're still not loving towards sinners in our culture today. We know that because in order to love someone or be accepting of someone, we as a culture need to call sin not sin in order to, in order to love them. Because as soon as you say the word sin or describe someone's behavior as sinful, the implication is you must hate them. You, you, you must have hatred toward them in order to see sin in a person. Because we can't conceive of a God who loves sinners, and we can't conceive of a God who is so loving that he makes fellow sinners love other sinners because they have experienced his transforming love. We still don't love sinners. Our, 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 our culture still hasn't figured this out. And yet this is at the heart of God. And it is at the heart of how he expresses and seeks to prove his love to us. God's love for us was settled at the cross. That is where God proved his love. And it wasn't like, when Jesus died for us at the cross, it wasn't like, well, this is the one time I'm going to show you love and, I'm, and then I'm just going to check out and not be loving anymore. No, he proved his love for us once and for all at the cross, and he has, but, but he has loved us every day since. He has loved us from before the foundation of the earth. But it is there that he proves his love. He shows his love for us and tries to convince us of his love. And so before we move on, we've said this is so foundational that if you don't get it, the other stuff isn't really going to work for you. So it's important that you stop and you pause and you say, have I received the love of God? Have I looked to the cross in faith and received all that God has done for me there? And if I have... Will I purpose in my heart to stop doubting God? To stop doubting God's love? To stop looking at my circumstances here and thinking that I can somehow interpret the mind of God to, and, and judge the quality of his love by 
whether my car started right this morning or, you know, the little things that, that would otherwise be a part of the circumstances of our lives. Will you decide this morning to answer the doubts of your heart with conviction? To say, he's loved me with a love I never deserved. He proved his love for me at the cross and he has continued that love every day since. This is the love of God. So we've said that we can't get better until we see the love of God. And we've seen that we don't see the love of God or we do see the love of God in a blessing that we don't deserve. It comes through his grace. That's his love language. But then he'll turn in a different direction. He wants you to see something, another side of, uh, of his love and another way that he proves his love to you. Because the passage also shows us that we see the love of God in a deliverance that we couldn't achieve. Because God's love is always to be seen, in Scripture at least, against the backdrop of his righteous anger and his judgment. It's seen against the spiritual forces that oppose us. We see the love of God in a deliverance we couldn't achieve. This is where the pa- passage gets a little difficult. Uh, Jacob, I have loved. That, that part was easy. Now we get to the second half. We're in verse 2. I have loved Jacob. Verse 3 goes on to say, but Esau I have hated. We need to first of all state that it's not a statement of personal dislike. It's not like he's looking at Esau and saying, all that hunting stuff, that really is just not my thing. Um, he, he's not saying that Esau was too macho, so I'm just not into him. It's not a statement of personal dislike. It's, not, it's also not a statement of meanness. It's not like, I, I, just, I just don't like him and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bully him and be mean to him. We, we know that because in Deuteronomy 23.7, God actually commands the Israelites not to abhor an Edomite for he is your brother. He commands them, treat, them, treat the Edomites like family. Remember, remember where you came from. Jacob and Esau were brothers. And although Esau had been this constant thorn in the flesh to, to Jacob, although the Edomites had been enemies and had made themselves enemies to the Israelites, He said, you treat them like brothers. Don't abhor them. Don't hate them. Don't don't show that uh, kind of personal animosity towards them. God's hatred here is not that. It's not a statement of meanness. It's not a statement of personal dislike. It's a statement of his right judgment and his judgment on unrepentant sinners. Esau was a picture of all the Israelites could have been outside of God's grace. Esau was a picture of what they could have been, the path that they could have taken. See, Esau was the one who sold his birthright. said, I'd rather have a bowl of soup than the blessing of God. He was the one who disregarded God's promises. He'd been told about the promises of God. And he said, I don't know if I need that help from God's stuff so much. I'm kind of a strong hunting type. I I kind of 
get the job done myself. I think that uh, I, I, I think that I, I can I can make it, make a go of it on my own. He downplayed and disregarded the promises of God, and he took strength and confidence in who he was and what he could accomplish. He he was ruled by his stomach. He lived by his strength. And he faced the judgment of God for it. But this is, the book of Malachi wasn't writ, written to the Edomites. It was written to Israel. It was written to the people of God and it was given to them for a very specific purpose. He, they were saying, God was saying, you look there at what has become of that nation and you remind yourself of all that could have happened to you. See my grace in what I have delivered you from. Verse 4 paints a terrible picture that makes us, frankly, feel uncomfortable. It it says of Edom, the nation that descended from Jacob's twin Esau, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. It's a statement of condemnation. It's a statement of eternal judgment. And make no mistake, this is not some anomaly in the Old Testament somewhere. This is God's stated response to unrepentant sinners. We don't like to talk about this today. We don't like to talk about uh, God's judgment and condemnation. We don't speak of hell and the faith that awaits those who stand apart from the promises of God. But in Avoiding those conversations and not thinking about God in these terms, we are forced to look to our circumstances to try and say, does God love me or does God not love me? We will turn somewhere else. And he says, no, no, you are to look to what your life could have been like outside of the promises of God. If I had not come into your life by grace, this would have been your path. This is how you would have ended up. And we are to meditate on that and say, how rich and how generous is God's love for me. How gracious he has been that I stand and stand in in his grace. Now, there was another reason God was telling Israel about Esau's demise. Because the Edomites were their enemies. They were the ones when Israel entered the promised land, the Edomites were there to oppose them. They said, you're not, getting, you're not going through us. You can get in, but you're going around. When Israel went out of the promised land because they were attacked by the Babylonians and carried into exile, Edomites, the, the brother nation, they just piled on. They added insult. They kicked them when they were down. And they represented for Israel their enemies, These are the people who are constantly attacking them, constantly against them. And God points to their demise to say, remember how I have delivered you. And see how they are coming to an end here to know how I will finally deal with all of the enemies of God, all of the, the people who have oppressed and brought injustice against God's people. It's like when the Moabites hired the prophet Balaam to curse the Israelites. In Deuteronomy 23.5, it says, God would not listen to Balaam. And it says he turned the curse into a blessing for them because of 
his great love. Deliverance is one of God's love languages. It's the way that he proves his love to us. And if we're constantly looking at how my day is going and how my month is going and what my circumstances are for, and think that's how God is going to prove his love to me, we're, we're constantly going to be misinterpreting and misreading his love. And our understanding and experience of that love will go up and down where God had intended it to be secure in our hearts. In his 2016 memoir, Born to Run, Bruce Springsteen spoke very frankly about some of the struggles in his life and particularly a very difficult relationship with his father. Uh, In a, a Vanity Fair interview, he was asked by the interviewer, did your father ever tell you that he loved you? And Springsteen said, I never heard it. He never, he never expressed his love to me that way. But he said there was one night, a few days before the birth of my first child, where very uncharacteristically, his father had traveled 400 miles to his home in Los Angeles. And at night he had said to him, Bruce, you've been very good to us, and I haven't been very good to you. And Springsteen writes, that was it. That was all I needed. That was all that was necessary. And if I hadn't read that, I wouldn't have thought that the the tough, macho, successful Bruce Springsteen would have needed to hear that his father loved him. But I I should have. He said that was necessary. I needed those words. I mention that not so much to talk about your father or my father. I mention that for you to see how different our heavenly father is from Bruce Springsteen's father. Our heavenly father expresses his love. He communicates his love. He tries to persuade us of his love. But his love language and his love isn't primarily interpreted through the circumstances in my life, which I often don't understand. But his love language is grace. His love language is a blessing that we don't deserve. His love language is deliverance. The way he expresses his love is in rescuing us from the spiritual forces that oppose us, in delivering us from a life that we would have purchased for ourselves, a life of terrible consequences outside of God's grace and outside of the promises of God. If you haven't received that love this morning, I want to urge you to turn to him, to receive it from him because nothing else that we can say, nothing else that you see in the scriptures will make sense until you have received that love that God showed us at the cross proved it there but it was a proof that of this love that that didn't begin begin began in eternity past and haven't hasn't stopped any day since if you have received that love i want to encourage you to meditate on it to reflect on it to remember all that he has accomplished for you and the deliverance how he has delivered you from a life that could have been, that would have been, 
and if he hadn't have intervened. And as you feel and experience that love of God that he has proven to you, that he has expressed to you, to then turn to the people around you who are in, who need that love as much as you and I need it and express that love that we have received from our, our great and gracious God. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your generous love. Help us never to take it for granted. Help us to receive it by faith. Help us to dwell on it and to rest in it. Help us to trust you with our circumstances when they, when they do make sense and when they don't. And help us to believe that your love for us was settled once and for all at the cross. Help us to lead off with love the way that you do. And to express our love to the people around us. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.